This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where people from our firm share their insights on developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. It will surprise none of our listeners to hear that technology is changing the way the world does business. But what might be striking or interesting is the way financial firms are deploying the latest innovations to better serve clients around the world. Marty Chavez, the firm's chief information officer, is here to discuss some of the most dynamic trends in technology today and how they're being deployed or leveraged by Goldman Sachs. Marty, welcome to the program. Happy to be here. Let's talk about some of the disruptive is the word of the year, I guess, disruptive trends in technology that we're seeing. Um, One of those is cloud computing. You've Mm -hmm. talked a lot about it. You've described it as part of a cycle of paradigm shifts that we've seen in in the technology space every 20 years or so. Tell us about the history of those paradigm shifts and how cloud fits into the story. So if we roll back to when I first walked into the University of New Mexico Computing Center in 1976, huge room, raised floor, IBM 360 model 67 mainframe, lots of air conditioning, punched card machines. I really did catch the tail end of punched card machines, maybe just by a few months. By 77, they were mostly being replaced by terminals. And so that paradigm, which was stable for a period of time, gave way, as we all know, to mainframes getting smaller, and those were the mini computers and the microcomputers, and they got really, really small, and then there were the personal computers. And this is a, uh, a trend that, that many great companies in the West Coast uh, built themselves on, is that if you had enough of these personal computers and you put them on the desktops of everybody who worked in your company, you had something really powerful. Now, one thing that's happened that's fascinating in the last 10 years is that with the increasing prevalence of standards in the industry, you can now mix and match. You can take any kind of computing device and you can plug it into the ethernet because the ethernet is a standard. And so you can take collections of what are really PCs, except most of what's not essential about the PC has been thrown away and it's really just a, it's just a blade, it's just a board. And you can stick these boards into racks that might be someplace far away from where your company is in some data center by a river or by a fjord somewhere. These architecturally look an awful lot like a mainframe, except instead of seeing the mainframe in the University of Mexico computing machine room on a raised floor, you don't get to see it anymore because it's far away, and so you call it in the cloud. It's so far away, it might as well be in the sky. So in some respects, this paradigm shift from mainframes to personal computers, client-server, to cloud, you could really say is back to the future. We've just taken the mainframes, we made them collections of simplified PCs, and we've put them off in the cloud. But something else really interesting has happened at the same time, which is that software engineering has greatly advanced as a discipline. And so now you can have these vast software applications that are actually running on collections of tens of thousands of hundreds of thousands or millions of computers. Increasingly, you even have applications that are smart enough 
to run across multiple data centers all over the planet. And so that development and advancement in software engineering, together with these paradigm shifts, has led us to an amazing point in the evolution of technology. So let's talk about open source, yes. one of the other major changes. Tumultuous history, having a transformative impact today on the software industry. Where is open source in its evolution? And how should we think about how that interacts with open compute and the cloud? Sure, so I, I, I'll start with the second part of your question to put everything in context. So for decades, the conventional wisdom in Silicon Valley and many places was if you wanted to start a software company from scratch and get it to profitability, you needed about $50 million of invested capital. Five zero. Yep. Yes. And interestingly, that number, 50 million, stayed about the same for decades. Now, in the last five to 10 years, which is really an instant, that $50 million number has plummeted. And now it's 5 million. It actually might be less than 5 million now. And it's very hard if you're working in the financial markets to think of any time series for anything that stayed at 50 million for decades and then suddenly dropped to five. Nothing in the world does that. It's really about the most powerful deflationary trend. It's not even a, a trend, it's more falling off a cliff by an order of magnitude. And there are at least two drivers and you mentioned them. So one of those would be cloud platforms. Instead of having to buy a lot of gear, expensive mainframes, you can rent, pay. Rent to own. Rent to own, pay right. as you go. Right. Rent and just rent forever. And then in addition, there's open source, uh, which instead of paying software licenses, amazingly you can get software of incredibly high quality, and this is itself a revolution, for which the licensing fee is zero. Those two powerful trends are what drop that $50 million number down to, to five. Which is why we're seeing some of the ideas that came around 15, 20 years ago now seem much more viable. They're, they're viable, they're economic. You can get there without raising vast amounts of capital. And to your question on open source, the idea of open source has actually been around for a long time. It's been around as long as I've been computing, which is, um, I'll say, maybe late 70s, early 80s. And so this trend of open source has taken off, really, in the last 10 to 20 years. And it happens in many places. Software is the one we're talking about here, but you can think, for instance, of Wikipedia as another kind of a very successful open source project. Let's talk a little bit more specifically about Goldman Sachs and the financial industry. And Marty, as you address how we think about these kinds of issues at Goldman, talk a little bit about Symphony, which is something that's gotten a little bit of attention. It's a product that we developed internally as a better way for us to communicate inside the firm, but we've now launched it externally with our competitors, with our clients, and it's got a whole different range of applications beyond messaging. Talk a little bit about that. We used to say the only thing crazier than building all your own software is not building all your own software. That was the old mantra. And in the last five years, we've shifted to a different mantra. 
which is download, build, buy, in that order. So we have been early adopters of very large numbers of distinct open source platforms where we, where we download them. And then typically we'll stitch those open source platforms we downloaded together and that's the build part. And only when those two modes won't work for our business do we go to the last one, which is buy. And so something that we've been doing a lot of, especially in the last couple of years, is embracing the other part of open software, which is taking software that we've built ourselves and contributing it into open source. And Symphony is an early example of that. So Symphony is really two, maybe three things, all with that uh, brand Symphony. So it is a messaging workflow platform called Symphony. It's an open software foundation and then a for-profit company that sells solutions and services on the free open source platform. And in our view, it's the new paradigm that we're going to be working with a lot more. So instead of maybe something that we did a lot of 10, 20 years ago, which is working together with other banks to create consortia to build shared industry services. Which is a time-consuming and complicated process to get the whole industry on board. Very challenging. It's the, it's the convening, it's the many meetings, and then, and then one of the things that maybe is challenging there too is that designing software by committee is a very hard proposition. And so instead of consortia, we're really moving to this new model where the software is free and it's under an Apache 2 open source license and you can download it from GitHub. And then we work together, not just with other banks, but really crucially with our clients to create a for-profit company that sells solutions and services on the free open source platform. That's Symphony. You'll be seeing more of that. Earlier, Marty, you were talking about big data and the accumulation of data and how we glean insights from that data. One of the interesting things is with the vast quantity of data that's being gathered, how is it distilled into information that's useful and actionable? And, and what are you seeing that's promising on that front in this industry? We made a lot of progress back in the late 80s, but finally we just hit a wall. A lot of those problems where we hit the wall with machine learning and artificial intelligence in the 80s and 90s, now with cloud platforms, distributed platforms, open software, more hardware, the progression of Moore's Law, which is exponential, those problems have now become tractable. And mm -hmm. so that is happening in every field. It's happening in medical diagnosis, it's happening in genomics, and of course, it's happening in financial services. Now, often people immediately think, ah, can we use big data to predict the future level of the stock market? And that's not our goal. That's not what we're thinking about. While reasonable people could debate whether that's philosophically even possible, we're thinking of big data in a different way. Big data is just keeping track of what's happening in our business for the sole purpose of delivering a better experience to the clients. 
right? Do the clients get more liquidity? Do they get more of the kinds of securities and risk transfer that they want? Do they get it at better prices? Do they get it more rapidly? Do they get it in more jurisdictions, in more different packages? And that's what we're using big data for. Some of our colleagues actually say that in financial services, it's not so much a big data problem as it is a very big number of small data problems. All right. So we've talked a little bit about the opportunities and, and upside of living in an increasingly digitized world. There are obviously also risks, cybersecurity being an obvious one. Sure. How do you think about those risks and, and how does this industry work together, if it does at all, to address those? So one of the things that we're doing, and this is in the context of Symphony and other projects that we're working on, is we're taking the entire processing platform of Goldman Sachs, all the analytics and liquidity provision and risk management and reports that we've been building with 10,000 engineers for the last 30 years, taking all of that platform and putting digital interfaces on it and extending that platform out to our clients. And as we're doing it with Symphony, extending the platform equally to our competitors. And instead of having the interface to Goldman Sachs be the telephone exclusively, the interface now becomes mobile devices, browsers, the telephone, of course. And then in many cases, our computer platforms talking directly to our clients' computer platforms through application programming interfaces or, or APIs. Yeah, so we found by looking at the examples of Silicon Valley that companies, when they open up their platforms, paradoxically create whole new value chains that no one could ever have thought existed. Mm -hmm. So the original designers of the internet didn't know that it would lead to Google, which would then lead to Google Maps, which would then lead to Uber. Impossible to, to pre-envision all that. So that's incredibly exciting. Everything has a, a downside. Mm -hmm. And so the downside of creating all these new entry points into our platform, these digital APIs into our platform, is it greatly increases the surface area of the firm. And so this is something that it's imperative that we do in a really thoughtful, serious, risk-mitigating way. And so the process of reviewing all of these new service points into Goldman Sachs, the information security review, is intense. We think of everything that we know about that could possibly happen, and then we free associate the and think of things the, that, the, the unknown no unknowns, we think of, un, uh, of things that we've never seen happen that might happen, and what our response would be in the face of those kinds of threats, and then something else which you'll find across the financial services industry and in Silicon Valley, hugely important, powerful mitigation to cyber threats of all kinds is encryption. And so the concept of encrypting everything, like all information when it's moving around the internet, and then also when it's at rest, and then making sure that the right people have the keys that allow them to decrypt that information is really important. So 
Talk about your own career a little bit. As a technologist, how did you find your way to finance and, and how have you found it being here? What's kept you here? I've been a technologist all my life. I first started to learn how to program computers when I was 10. It was always the, the, thing, I, the thing I loved. And I never planned a career in finance. I went from college to grad school in Silicon Valley and my plan, be an entrepreneur in Silicon Valley. Well, at that time, late 80s, early 90s, that was absolutely without any question one of the cyclical troughs of the software business. And I just mentioned some advice one of my closest friends gave to me, secret of his success, right place, right time, right preparation. <laughs> and so I didn't know that really what I'd been doing all of that time, working in Silicon Valley and working on my education, learning how to program computers, was preparing for a career in finance. That, that part was not disclosed to me. But what happened is in the early 90s, Goldman Sachs, some leaders who are still here with our firm, had really seen the future and knew that engineering and software and analytics and math and data science were really rapidly moving from being a part of our business to the core of our business. And so the gentleman who hired me told the headhunter, I want you to make a list of entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley with PhDs from Stanford in computer science and invite them here for an interview. And so nothing special about me other than I happened to be on the intersection. You were on the list. <laughs> on the list, All on right. the list. And, uh, and I'd gone to undergraduate on the East Coast and I always loved New York. And, and actually, I have to say, I looked at that, that interview as a free trip to New York, see some Broadway shows and go do some interviews. And, and the thing that happened that was, that was astonishing for me is I, um, I met some people who had put me on that headhunters list and they told me about the problems that they were solving and I always had a peripheral interest in finance. I didn't know that some of the hardest problems you could possibly solve with math and software were in finance and so I had the good fortune of being an early member of a team that had a really ambitious plan which was to crack the problem of building a platform for managing risk for a large-scale, global, wholesale financial institution in every product. And I joined that team and it's been so riveting that I've just been doing it for a long time. I think the thing that's happening now is that some of these trends that we've talked about, together with the regulators making the system safer and sounder after the financial crisis, the trends in technology, it's all coming together at this point in time right here, right now. Yeah, I've finance never, and technology are yeah, moving together. Never seen, never seen an intersection like this. So it is, the, it is the best of all possible times. So that's your history. Right. Now you run a division, yes. thousands of technologists here at Goldman Sachs. What do they all do? So engineering is a very broad discipline. And so as you would expect, there are financial engineers, software engineers, network engineers, hardware engineers, user experience engineers, infrastructure engineers, 
quality assurance engineers. So, so there's many different kinds of engineering talent in the firm. And also importantly, there's a substantial group of about 1,500 of our engineers who most of the world would these days use a, a newer term and call them data scientists. And so these are people with math and statistics skills, data analytics skill sets, who can also build software. We've had the view for decades here at Goldman Sachs that math written up on a whiteboard or a blackboard wasn't all that useful, but math captured in software that we could deploy across the firm to our salespeople, bankers, and traders was immensely useful. All of the engineers are doing what I'm doing, which is solving complicated problems for clients using math and software. Increasingly, we found in large parts of our business, the most notable examples being equities and foreign exchange, those businesses, the workflow, the buying and selling, the trading in those businesses has just become heavily digitized and heavily automated. And so many of our people are working not just on the math and the quantitative problems, but are actually writing software to facilitate all that trading on behalf of clients and making sure that we do that safely and soundly. And then there's just a huge amount of regulatory reporting, downstream processing, operations, know your client, anti-money laundering, moving cash and securities and confirmations around all of that software, all of that's being digitized as well. So that gives you a sense of what our people are working on. So let's look ahead. Lloyd Blankfein likes to say we're very good at predicting the present. He <laughs> always hesitates to predict the future. But technology evolves. Your job is to think about how it's going to evolve. What's most exciting if you think ahead three, four, five, ten years um, on the technology landscape? Well, where do I start? The, the most exciting thing has to be that we're moving from the traditional kind of static analytics, predicting the present, tell us what happened yesterday or tell us what's happening right now, uh, to something that, that looks a lot more about telling us what's likely to happen in the near or medium terms. And so I've never been a, a big fan of the term uh, artificial intelligence. I find the term machine learning to be a little bit more useful, or, or maybe we just call it data science, or why not just call it math statistics and software, which is what it's always been. But looking in the data and finding patterns and then finding action that you can take based on the patterns is leading to, to breakthroughs, right? So, so for instance, we used to worry a lot about writing software that would understand natural language. But as Google and many other companies have shown us, if you're just doing really good pattern matching and statistics, you can type a few keywords in and Google really knows what you're talking about, right? So, so that applying it to all aspects of our business is going to be huge. The other thing that's going to be huge is that there are things that we can do by extending our digital platform out to the clients and everybody's working on the same platform that we could intrinsically never do just by talking to each other on the telephone. Right? So the, 
the richness and the analytics and the sharing and the workflow that can happen on these platforms that are running out there in the cloud that we use, our competitors use, and our clients use, it's going to change the experience of financial services from start to finish in ways that are very hard to predict, but that trend is happening. It's underway and it's accelerating. Marty, thank you very much. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. I'm Jake Seward. Thanks for listening. This podcast was recorded on April 1st, 2015. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast is not financial research, nor a product of Goldman Sachs Global Investment Research. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.